I love cooking, <laughs> so I love that peace and quiet of being able to prepare. People are so grateful and you get to interact with them and be part of their event and see the joy that good food brings to people. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Often we talk about food in restaurants as pushing the boundaries of gastronomy, authenticity, and of connecting with farmers and making the produce shine. But at its core, food is about nourishment and sating the body and mind too. How do you build a career that focuses on all of this? Sarah Wilton is the owner of Chef Sarah. Sarah, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's good to get you on the show. You do all sorts of interesting things from catering to um, working um, in really sort of nourishing food in that area. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Um, So my main business is called Chef Sarah. Uh, That's where I I do small catering jobs. So I I, I go to a lot of holiday houses because we're located in a beautiful holiday area near Foster, near Bluey's Beach, that sort of area. So I'm going into people's homes. I'm going into people's holiday homes um, and I'm doing dinner parties from sometimes as small as two people up to probably maximum, I mean, I can push it to 80, but 50 is a good number. 10 is a really nice number. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm I'm just going into, you know, the normal domestic kitchen and cooking up feasts. Sometimes I'm doing, you know, degustation. Often more now it's sort of the banquet to table, family-style sharing meals. That's what people seem to like, more casual yeah, so that, that's my main job, but I also have a few little side projects. So I make organic chicken liver pate and I sell that locally, um, you know. Um, so organic chicken livers, grass-fed butter, bone broth reduction, brandy, and I sell that at the local bottle shop deli and I sell it at the local Govida health food shops. And... Yeah, what else am I doing? And then I have my second business, which is called Nourish Soul Sanctum, which I collaborate with a yoga teacher, Megan Jones. And we do yoga retreats. So we might do three-night yoga retreats off-site. We usually go to the same um, venue, which is located in Stroud, which is about an hour sort of west of here or of Newcastle. Yeah, and it's all about wellness and retreating and taking some time out. It's mostly for women, I guess. And we have a lot of fun because <laughs> she's also my best friend. <laughs> well, I want to explore some of the things that you're doing there. You mentioned that um, often you're catering for you know small numbers or large numbers, but using someone's domestic kitchen. Is there any challenges and do you have any stories of you know arriving and dealing with a kitchen that you sort of not used before? Well, yeah, they all have a story. I think I've blocked a lot of it out. <laughs> it's usually the oven. It's usually that oven and I get there and I crank it and see how it goes and often I think, what am I doing? Because you, it takes a while to learn what an oven does, what it's like. Um, yeah, I've, I haven't had any disasters. It actually amazes me a lot of the time that I can pull it off. <laughs> I think I had five chickens once in a 60-centimetre oven and 
they cooked right on time. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that part of what you do is um, partnering with, with your friend with the yoga retreats and sort of nourishing food. You know, a lot of chefs talk about fat is flavor. How do, how do you sort of approach what you do, you know, bringing flavor and making sure there's nutrient-rich food as well when you're catering and doing these events? Yes, that's an interesting question. So I am all about the fat. Let me tell you, I love butter. Um, my daughter's embarrassed by how much butter I put on a sandwich. She's actually told me to stop. <laughs> uh, so butter, butter's my friend. Um, but, you know, there's coconut oil, cold-pressed virgin coconut oil, I believe, is also good. Anything that's unrefined and unprocessed, I'm I'm all for that. Um, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan, but on our retreats we do do um, mostly vegan food. But I wouldn't recommend that long term. I think that's nice to, to do a cleanse or a, a detox. It's very cleansing to eat that much plant-based food in three or four days. Um, and, yeah, it's really been a challenge because before that I was mostly all carnivorish, um, paleo, paleo sort of based for myself. And, and I had to learn, yeah, how to cook vegan or, or raw vegan and um it's been yeah I'm still learning I don't think necessarily that's a good good way to live that's my personal opinion to to be vegan I don't think is sustainable tell us a little bit about these yoga retreats and the sort of food that you create what's what's the sort of typical menu or dishes that you might create for that experience yeah, well, we start the day sort of light with a, a cold-pressed juice bar and some miso soup because a lot of people are really used to eating a big breakfast, which I am not. But it's 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 geared towards having the main meal in the middle of the day when the sun is the hottest and the brightest. That's when we should be eating the most and then pairing it back towards the night time. So we might start the day then with um, a organic porridge or a chia seed bircher and then at lunch we might have a sort of a big buffet and I usually base it on uh, like a, a certain cuisine from a certain area in the world and sort of go from there we don't use a lot of grains we don't we're gluten-free um, I prepare all grains legumes and nuts properly by soaking them which is um, makes it more nutritious and more bioavailable for the body and then dinner time, we might go soup and salad. Yeah, and then we'll have an afternoon, like a sweet treat in the afternoon. So it's all, yeah, refined sugar-free as well. Well, I want to explore some of the things that you're doing, particularly with the catering arm, Chef Sarah. But take us back to when you were young. But What sort of role did food play in your family growing up? Yeah, I've been thinking about this, obviously, because I knew I was coming on here, but I think really my, my whole life has been based around food because I grew up on a farm, grew up on a pig farm, which is all about food. Um, yeah, and then surrounded by orchards because it was just outside of Orange, which is apparently known as the food basket of New South Wales. Um, now I think it's more like the, the, the grape vine basket. You know, a lot of those orchards now are, are not there. They've been replaced with 
grapes. And where I grew up now, it's it used to be orchard, and now a lot of that's gone. They're just sort of paddocks, which is really sad. So, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I grew up on a pig farm, and that was all I knew. Do you have any stories of life on the pig farm? Oh, gosh. I, I do remember, you know, Dad getting upset with me because I used to go and sit in the in in the farrowing cages with the the mother pig where she couldn't actually reach her young and I used to play with the piglets and they'd all become too tame and, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And my dad wouldn't eat pork. So I don't know if that was because... He loved them or the opposite. I think it was the smell, actually. Yeah. And so I didn't start eating pork until later on when I moved to China and um, that was pretty much it. You, you needed to eat pork <laughs> over there. Take take us back to life when, when you were young. When did you sort of start getting involved in the kitchen and sort of um, having an interest in food? Yeah, I think I was – born obsessed with food um maybe it was because i had so many brothers there was five of us all together and and, you know if you didn't get in and get your fair share you'd miss out because they were hungry boys and they still are um so i i do have this other distinct memory of being in kindergarten and and being asked you know what do you want to be when you grow up and the girl next to me drew a princess and i drew a chef so I, I think it started young and I was always baking and, Mum, can I make a cake? And that would make everyone happy if I was baking cakes. Tell us about your road to becoming a chef. When, when did that sort of um, get traction and what were the sort of big influences on you? Yeah, so when I was in high school um, in Orange, they offered hospitality in year 11 and 12 so you could go to TAFE and... Um, and sort of, I don't know what I don't know what it's called. I can't remember, but it's sort of like a certificate too in hospitality, something like that. So every, I think it was one day a week, we'd just go to TAFE and we'd have our chef's whites and our little toolboxes, and I loved it. And the the teachers there were amazing. They were so good and they were so influential, and they they gave me the confidence and sort of saw something in me that that I. Yeah, that, that gave me the confidence to to keep going and I, I just loved it. And I remember getting a, a chef's knife for Christmas one year and, um, yeah, so from there I uh, – well, after year 12 I went to Brazil on exchange and so I didn't really – yeah, I didn't really start a cooking career until I came back from there and I didn't – I sort of fought it. I didn't think that's what I wanted to do but I just fell into it. Do you have any stories from your time in Brazil and the sort of food uh, that you experienced there? Yeah, well, that place blew my mind because I'd grown up on a little farm out of town in Orange and, you know, we didn't really do a lot of travelling as kids because Dad was so tied to the farm. So then I moved to Brazil uh, and ended up on an island with 42 beaches. <laughs> that was like the best time ever, you know. I I couldn't speak the language. I lived with a Brazilian family and I had to learn pretty quick. But their food is all based on culture and tradition and bringing, bringing their huge families together and having big barbecues. And we used to go out in the boat 
this little speedboat because we lived on on a lagoon that went out to the ocean and we'd go on the boat and we'd go to these little bars on the side of the, the lagoon that would sell these amazing fish and chips with l- fresh lime. I mean, I don't even think I'd seen a lime before <laughs> before I went there amongst everything else. It was, yeah, it blew my mind. You mentioned that um, you moved to China at one stage. Um, tell us about that experience. When, when did that happen? That happened, um, I think I was, a, I think it was 03. So I was about 25 and I just finished my apprenticeship at, at Bailey's Pavilion. I just finished there and I'd sort of had enough. I needed a break. And so we did this teaching English as a foreign language course and uh, signed a contract to live in China for a year. And so we ended up over there. And that was also we were in a place where, you know, a lot of, a lot of the locals had never seen a, a Western person. And, and there was a lot of food options. You know, we used to go to KFC to get some bread. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And then they opened Walmart and we were excited about that. But we ended up eating just like the locals. And that was amazing because it wasn't like your average, you know, sweet and sour pork down at the... The Chinese restaurant, it was amazing. Is, are there any dishes that's, that stand out from your time there that you look back on fondly? Oh, this is the Sichuan cooking. I, I didn't know that existed before I went there. Um, just the, the amount of chilli that they used, it was all amazing. And, and the way that they can cook sort of all these dishes on this, in this crappy little stove with a wok and a rice cooker and they prepare these amazing banquets so yeah we were living in the thick of it there too and just the, i guess the noodle soups yeah they're amazing and the dumplings so i've eaten a lot of dumplings in my time <laughs> probably too many <laughs> you briefly mentioned bathers pavilion and your your apprenticeship there what, what do you have any stories of what that was like and the influence it had on you and your cooking yeah, I, I mean, I it was right at the end of my apprenticeship that I ended up there. Um, it was always a dream of mine to be in the best restaurant in Sydney, and and I I just had to do that. I had to get there, and, and I did. I did end up there, but I was fourth year, and I was I was in the cold larder, and I it was sort of it's I was really at the bottom of of that sort of hierarchy in the fine dining restaurant. It, it was hard work, you know, it was seven days a week and it was, they were long days. And I, you know, I learned a lot. It was amazing. That, that restaurant is amazing. You know, it's got the bakery, it's got the cafe. It's, I think it's changed a lot since I was there. That was, you know, a fair while ago now, 20 years. Yeah, 20 years ago. You mentioned that China was a, a break away from, from chefing for a period of time. What, what was the step back into the industry that you made? Yeah, well, I realised when I did that that I sort of lost my zest for life. <laughs> I mean, I, my happy place is in the kitchen. I did a lot of eating over there, but I it was just I felt like I'd sort of yeah lost my way there for a bit. So I, we came back and um, moved to Newcastle. So I went into Crown Plaza there. Just um, I was chef to party and sort of 
worked my way up a bit there and the chef had a lot of confidence in me and he was a great chef, um, John, John Ledbitter. And that was a good experience too because I always wanted to get into a hotel and have that experience. And then they sort of started towards the end of there, they were starting to bring in all the sort of pre pre-manufactured sauces and all that sort of, you know, consistency-based food. So I left there and then I ended up in the Snowy Mountains at Parisha, yeah, just um, running a little sort of, what do they call them? Up in Parisha anyway, just a small sort of, not a chalet, but, yeah, a little restaurant there. And that was a lot of fun because I was in charge. <laughs> well, tell us, what, what, what was it like being in charge and what was the offering that you were creating there? Well, they sort of, it was, it was dinner for the guests that was, that was staying there. Um, yeah, it was hard work, but I knew I could do it. Um, we'd do it like, sometimes I'd do 60 covers a night by myself, that sort of thing. So I guess you learn to be pretty savvy in the kitchen because a lot of the time those places, they've got no staff. What sort of food were you cooking there? Can you give us an example of... All I can remember now is lamb shanks. (laughs) 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 You know, hearty food. But no, I think I had some kangaroo on the menu and and local trout. And yeah, so... And then I ended up down in... um, No, then from there I went to Malaysia. So that gave me the confidence to branch out and take on a real job. So I ended up in a five-star um, hotel in KL, opening up a new restaurant. <laughs> I don't know how, but that's what happened. <laughs> Someone saw something in me and I went over there and I was in a, yeah, it was a, I think a 500-room hotel in the Gold Triangle and they were opening a – they wanted a modern – a mod Oz bistro in the heart of KL and, and I was I was the one to do that, which was very challenging because <laughs> I had no clue. <laughs> and the restaurant hadn't even been finished yet, the fit out or – and it took so long. It was delayed and delayed and delayed. What was life like uh, in KL? Do you have any stories of sort of food adventures there? Yeah, it was great because I lived right – I lived in the hotel. And so, you know, downstairs there was a tandoori kitchen and around the corner there was the night markets and around the corner from there there was, you know, little Italian bistros or there was, you know, the big five-star hotels with the most amazing restaurants and most amazing buffets and high teas and um, Sunday brunches. And I was lucky enough to meet the, one of the chefs – the exact, yeah, was she the exact chef? Anyway, Kelly Dickinson, she was working at the Hilton and we are about the same age and she was Australian. She was um, sort of the protege of Chong, Chong Lu and so I sort of fell in with them and they, they showed me the way and they helped me. Without them I would have been so lost because no one in the hotel I was working in had worked with any sort of Western produce it was all very uh, traditional, I guess. What did you take from your time in Kale? Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Feels like a long time ago now. But, but probably that big scale sort of cooking is not for me. 
Yeah, because I, I ended up back in the Snowy Mountains and then I took over uh, Crackenback Cottage Restaurant. So it's sort of a bit iconic down that way. I don't know how it's going now. I think it might have closed. Crackenback definitely uh, had cult status for quite some time. Tell, tell us about that venue and what you were doing there. Oh, I loved it there because, yeah, it was mine and I was sort of allowed to make it my own and we were working sort of seasonally and trying to be trying to do sort of local produce, that sort of thing. It was a little tiny kitchen and we were pumping out the meals in the winter time. It was it was really hard work, but I loved it. You know, I thrived on it. What sort of food were you doing at that time? Well, it was fairly simple sort of, I guess, classic sort of food. Just trying to pare it back a bit and make it manageable and delicious and, you know, trout, local trout, um, pork belly. Um, we're doing some good desserts. We're making everything from scratch. I mean, we sold scones as well. There was plenty of morning and afternoon teas. But it, it taught me to pare things back and just yeah, not try to recreate the, the wheel of cookery. When did you decide to go out on your own and uh, create the catering company Chef Sarah? What was that like? Yeah, so I left Kraken back and then I was working in another restaurant and I was just a bit burnt out, um, did some travel and then found myself pregnant. <laughs> uh, I was, I think of the, the day that I found out I was pregnant, I started a new job teaching commercial cookery at TAFE, which in, in Cooma, and that really wasn't for me either. And then I was just so sick of the cold with a baby, and we ended up moving up to where I am now, so located near, near Foster, um, the Great Lakes area. Um, I think my daughter, Maya, was about two and I had somebody, a friend, so, so asked me to cater a, a family reunion and I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. That's pretty easy. And then from there it just I just went from there and it's just been word of mouth and it's, it's just evolved amazingly, yeah. I'm really lucky. It's a good area. <laughs> what, what does it take to sort of run a small uh, bespoke catering business, you know, such as yours? What are the challenges um, that you have? Uh, I think the main challenges are logistics. So, you know, I have my own sort of semi-commercial kitchen on my property. Um, so I, I do most of the prep there and then I have to transport it with all my equipment and a lot of the time I don't really know where, what I'm going into, so I just take everything I need. Uh, yeah, just loading up and unpacking and getting it done and um, then you have to do it all again, like take it all home. <laughs> so that's probably the, the biggest the, the biggest hurdle really, just being you have to be super organised because if you forget something, a lot of the time you don't have time to go back. COVID sort of changed everyone's world in the last couple of years and sort of catering got impacted pretty dramatically. What, what sort of impact did it have on you and what you do? Yeah, um, initially, well, I was, I was, I had no work, so obviously, 
people were scared and they didn't want to do anything and I was bunkering down and so then I was working with a lady um, Sue Williams who runs a small business here called Farm to Fridge so where she's gathered sort of all the local producers and um, providors and she created an online store um, and then she'd deliver once a week locally so I was I just started making everything that I could possibly think of and putting it into jars <laughs> so I was already making the pate I think and sauerkraut and ferments and then I started making you know local buffalo beef bourguignon and bolognese and pumpkin soup and lavash and hummus, um, cashew cheese, baba ganoush, anything I could put in a jar, you know, duck soup. And then I even was helping her deliver and pack. And, you know, so there'd be local fruit and veggies and local the local sourdough bakery. And so that's that's actually saved. That saved us. It saved our family. It was a tough time. And then from there, when it sort of opened up again, then everyone went crazy on the at-home dinner parties and my business absolutely just went crazy. So I was still sort of doing the farm-to-fridge thing and then doing the dinner parties and it was full on. It really made me realise what I could achieve. But it wasn't – I don't think it was sustainable for me because also, I, you know, the kids were there and, <laughs> you know, everything going on. But, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a crazy time. Were these sort of events different to what you had experienced before COVID? Like were people's expectations and um, desires different? I think they were just so grateful because they could sort of, you know, be together again and have a good time. And they realised that going out to dinner wasn't all it's cracked up to be, especially around here. And I think things have even proved, improved around here a bit in the last couple of years. But... You know, they didn't have to go out. They'd bring their own wine. They don't have to drive home. They could put the kids in the back room and have a great time. And, yeah, everyone's really grateful and appreciative. And, yeah, it's, it's actually a lot of fun sort of being part of that and being part of people's events. And, you know, a lot of the time you've got to kick people out of the kitchen because, <laughs> you know, they have a few wines and they're in the kitchen. <laughs> That's the other hurdle. It's the oven and the and the people <laughs> and the drinks. <laughs> you've you've also sort of been involved with uh, the Great Lakes Food Trail. Tell us a little bit about that and some of the local producers that you connect with. Yeah, well, that was a spin off really from um, what Sue created with Farm to Fridge. They started the I don't know which one came first, and yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure. But um, the Great Lakes Food Trail is just local providors and and small farms in the area that are sort of running sustainably or you know along those lines so there's a lot of great producers around here and it's getting better all the time um yeah we've had a few events that you do drive your own farm sort of farm visits and we'd, we'd set up markets like market stalls so i'd be cooking omelets with the local burrow um, buffalo cheese or um, what else did I do? I might have done rice paper rolls with local chicken or things like that, selling my pate and then other people would have, there's a local pastry chef, Nadine the Cake Queen, and she'd be 
whipping up all these desserts using local produce and then there's the local baker and then there's the land producer and local wineries. Yeah, that sort of thing. So it sort of runs. I think they're having a couple of events each year. I mean, that was also hit really hard with lockdowns and that sort of thing. And I think they're just getting back on their feet now. We did a big event um, a couple of months back. We did four courses and they had some permaculture speakers. I think the theme was, so you want to live on a farm? <laughs> it's not That's not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. But, but yeah, a lot of fun and a collaboration between different chefs and restaurants around the area and using local produce. You've created this uh, amazing little catering company. What, 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 what do you love about what you do with it? Oh, I love being able to do what I want to do. I love the freedom of saying yes or no to people. If I, you know, need that weekend off or I want to spend time with the family, um, I love – I love cooking, <laughs> so I love that peace and quiet of being able to prepare, you know, usually by myself and then going there and it's it's almost like being invited to a party and people are so grateful and you get to interact with them and be part of their event. It's, yeah, and see the joy that good food brings to people and they're always great clients, always. You've had such uh, great success with the catering company. What's the next year ahead look like? Do you have any plans? Um, I don't really know. Actually, yes, we do have plans because I've been um, spending obviously more time with my business partner, Megan, and our retreats are kicked off again, you know, after a really hard couple of years with cancellations and that sort of thing. So our plan is to write a book. So a recipe book, because every time that we do our retreats, everyone wants a recipe and I've been fighting it and fighting it and <laughs> because I'm not really a recipe follower, but um, yeah, <laughs> but the time has come. So we'll be doing a, a sort of a whole food and I guess you'd call it a wellness book. So that's exciting. Yeah. Wow. We'll look forward to seeing that. Um, it's an honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. It was, yeah, it was great. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>